for this time we can just humbly come before your feet and to thank you and to praise you and to glorify you for who you are for what you give for what you've done for how you move Father we just ask as we come before you tonight and spend some time in the word and in prayer God that you would meet us here Father, that your word would just find a fruitful place within our lives to take hold, to give root, to grow. Your word declares that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So, Lord, I pray that your word would be living and powerful tonight, sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that the the prophecy spoken of by Jeremiah so many years ago would find ears willing to hear today even though they never found ears willing to hear when they were given may we recognize that your word is still going forth to change lives So, Father, we just lay this time before you and ask your blessing and anointing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you tonight, open up to Jeremiah. We're actually almost done with Jeremiah. I think we've been in Jeremiah for like three years. But we're almost done. Don't worry, there's another book right behind it. So there's always more. Jeremiah chapter 48 is where we'll be. And we're in a section of Jeremiah. It's really after all the prophecies concerning the nation of Israel. This is a gathering of prophecies that Jeremiah gave at a variety of times, but it's called the prophecies against the nations. And basically all the nations around Israel, all the ones who are, are also facing God's judgment. And there's, there's just some important concepts, I think, that we want to that we want to grasp from it, that we want to be able to lay hold of. One of the things that just sticks out to me, especially as we go through this section of Scripture, is God holds the nations 
accountable. He holds them accountable for the witness that Israel had been in their midst. He holds them accountable for what Israel had uh, expected or what God had expected through them. See, these nations that we're reading about were never given the law. They, they never had this special relationship with God. They weren't shown a sacrificial system like the nation of Israel. They, they weren't given all those benefits. Although Israel modeled that in their midst, they weren't given those things. Yet, God still holds them accountable. Because it was available. And that concept is something that really boggles the mind when you take out the the prophecies fulfilled in history of Jeremiah and you put our world in the context of that scripture because in our world God holds the nations accountable for what they could know if they wanted to know and their unwillingness to find out was is not an excuse for their action not an excuse now I realize not everywhere in the world is the Bible accessible. But everywhere in the modern world that I have traveled, Switzerland, Russia, Greece, Israel, uh, uh, Europe, different places that God's given me the opportunity to go, every one of those places at the touch of a finger can have the word of God available for them. And they will be accountable for what they could know. Whether they ever choose to look, it's there. God indicates to us in the first three chapters of Romans, He indicates for us that He is evident in creation, that the concept of design is there. The problem is man will reject his creator and worship the creature and everywhere we go every society especially post-christian society and in the modern world one of the things we see is this this concept that there is this desire within men especially a young man or college-age kids that are coming up to have a cause the great failure of the church is we haven't given the cause should have they'll grab whatever cause is out there save the whales save a tree save a spotted owl save something because where they're going to school and where they're studying they're being introduced to these opportunities to change their world and the desire of their heart is to do so but they'll be held accountable for the truth they could know for though willingly they turn their back on the creator and worship the creation, it begins a downward spiral of man. The downward spiral of man ends in these chapters we're going to look at tonight. The judgment of God. The scripture tells us in Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. There will be no one Standing before the throne of God. None of us. Nobody. 
When we have our moment before that throne, it is going to be at once terrible and wonderful. Terrible because we will understand our wretchedness before a holy and pure and perfect God. Wonderful because beside us will be Jesus Christ throwing the robe of righteousness around our shoulders and covering our filth and making it beautiful. Making us accepted in the beloved, as Paul wrote in Ephesians. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. But what would it be to stand before the living God without that? That will only be terrible. Not, not the same concept of wonder. Yet that's what so much of the world is headed to. So much of the world that <clears throat> John probably knows. I forget the fella who started, uh, I don't even know the name of him anymore. Um, anyway, it'll come to me later. <clears throat> he started an organization uh, that you would all know, but I have forgotten. And when he started it, what his concept, his vision was to reach the world for Christ, to have an opportunity to... To reach people, hurting people, needy people, all kinds of people. And, and he declared that the cure for a complacent church was to set each church member for 10 minutes outside the gates of hell. It would just take, probably wouldn't even take 10 minutes, but to just gain the concept of what that is like would utterly and completely and totally change the heart of believers. Move them from complacency to a, a sense of urgency, which is exactly what Jesus calls us to. To be watchful, to be ready, to be doing the things that God's called us to do, to be who he's calling us to be. As we look at the scriptures tonight, we come to these nations. We'll begin with the judgment uh, of Moab in, in uh, chapter 48. And, and as we come to the judgment of Moab, I don't want you to forget where Moab had its start. The first two judgments of Moab, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. They both have the same father. His name's Lot. They have different moms. So two daughters of Lot. And the incestual relationship that occurred after the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah brought about these two people groups from a man that the scripture says is righteous. Wrap your mind around that. The easiest way to understand it is really the simplest and that is our righteousness really doesn't have anything to do with us. It has everything to do with him. The scripture declares in Genesis chapter 15 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him how? His righteousness. Our righteousness is given. Spiritual arrogance comes when we begin to think somehow we've earned it. Somehow we've earned our, our righteousness. We've earned our, our intelligence. We've earned our abilities. Somehow we have something to offer. That's where spiritual arrogance comes from. And, and the reality is, for every one of us, as we go through our, our journey with the Lord, we will walk through the valley of arrogance. 
So you have to. I don't know any way around the valley of arrogance. I Maybe I'm still in it. I feel like I've gone through it, but I don't know. Really, the Lord knows. And as we go through and we take that journey, it's when we can really come to an accurate depiction of who we are. When we can pick up the Scripture like Paul, and we can see in the pages of Scripture the condemnation of sin and recognize that it's talking to me. We can, we can echo with Paul that I am the chief of sinners. And Paul is about as holy a guy as you're going to pick out of the pages of Scripture. In reality, I mean, he was a sinner like we all are. He, he wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament. That's, that's a pretty called, directed, gifted man. But he knew, he, he would say, I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. That's a cure for arrogance. It's, it's not me. It's the hand of God moving through me. So we, as we read these, these, these scriptures dealing with God's judgment upon these nations, there's several things I'll point out as we go through, but just see, just recognize that Hebrews tells us the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Timothy tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for us. And remember our Greek lesson, all means all, that's all, all means. So then all scripture would include all of it. Even Leviticus 15, that you can read at your leisure. So as we take a look and as we go through, I encourage you to see it. It says in, in chapter 48, verse 1, Against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. In Kir Jethaim is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. No more praise of Moab. In Heshbon they have devised evil against her. Come, let us cut her off as a nation. You also shall be cut down, O madmen. The sword shall pursue you. A voice of crying will be heard in Horonaim, plundering in great destruction. As we go through the judgment, one of the things that we see in the nation of, of Moab and many of these nations who stood by and watched the destruction of the nation of Israel and thought that judgment wouldn't come to them. And we look at it and sometimes we think, well, man, judgment was quick to come to the nation of Israel, relatively speaking, compared to when it would come against Moab or Elam or Ammonites or the different nations that we're going to take a look at. It was fast when it came upon them. Well, what's the scripture tell us? Where does judgment begin? It begins in the house of God. With God's people. Those whom he loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he loves but God's desire is to see his children walk with the Lord it's his desire for each of us and the important thing to recognize is it's his desire for Moab too that's why judgment comes judgment does not come ever on the page of scripture just solely for destruction Judgment comes to provide an opportunity for repentance, to call upon the name of the Lord 
For it is in the judgment, as judgment falls, that people lift their hands to God and either curse or caress. Receive that which God has for them. Verse 4 says, Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have caused a cry to be heard. For in the ascent of Luhith, they ascend with continual weeping. For in the descent of Horonaim, the enemies have heard a cry of destruction. Flee, save your lives, and be like the juniper in the wilderness. For because you have trusted in your works and your treasure, you also shall be taken. So the Lord lays out for us one of the reasons behind that judgment. Because you have trusted in your works and your treasure. If your trust is in your works and your treasure, it is not in the Lord. Jesus said, no man can serve God and mammon. You either love one and hate the other or love the other and hate the one. But you can't be split. You either trust in yourself or you trust in the Lord. Their problem was they trusted in their own works and in their treasures. And then, and in Chemosh, it says, And Chemosh shall go forth into captivity, his priests, his princes together. Chemosh was the chief god of the Moabites. And the Lord is saying, here's the things that you trust in, yourself, your treasures, and this god, Chemosh, who's going to go with you. You're going to take the idol with you in the captivity. And there it goes, in the, into the same place where you go, with your priests and your princes together. He is unable to save. And the plunderer will come against every city, and no one will escape. The valley also shall perish, and the plain shall be destroyed, as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab, that she may flee, and get away. For her cities will be desolate without any to dwell in them. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully. And cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. For Moab has been at ease from his youth. And has settled on his dregs. And has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him. And his scent has not changed. One of the things that the Lord brings, one of the charges against Moab, since his youth, since Moab was a young nation, life has been relatively easy for them. You remember, if you read the book of Ruth, that there was famine in the the land of Bethlehem, and Ruth, or not Ruth, but uh, Naomi and her husband, uh, Elimelech, and their two sons went where? To Moab. Why? Why? Because there was food in Moab. When we look at this and we see this, I, I just have a hard time not seeing our nation in this, and actually in many of these things, but it says, being at ease from, from his youth. We're, we're just a bit over 200 years old. We are such a young pup to the rest of the world, it's not even funny. For example, if you find something 200 years old in Israel, it's junk. If you find something 200 years old here, it's an antique. It doesn't start being an antique in Israel until it's 1,000 years old. That's the difference in history. And throughout Europe, you have the same kind of a concept. But we're young, and we have it good. I don't care how bad the economy is. 
we have it good. And then it says he is settled on his dregs. The idea is a picture of his wine vats are all full and he's never had to drink any of them. He's got all that wine. Wine speaks of joy. In the page of scripture, wine speaks of joy. So he says he has not had to empty from vessel to vessel. Nor has he ever gone into captivity. How many times has our nation boasted the fact that, that we've never been conquered by anybody? That our land has never been invaded. It's like the same kind of boast that, that you would see. Therefore his taste remained. His taste remained in him. Nothing changed in Moab. Because life was good. So God brought judgment. Which will bring change. Therefore behold the days are coming says the Lord. That I will send him wine workers who will tip over the empty and empty his vessels and break the bottles. All the wine poured out. All that symbol of joy. The symbol of wealth. The symbol of luxury for the nation. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour them all out. I'm going to pour them out and break the bottles. That means they're not going to get filled up again. When you look at the top ten nations around the world, Moab's not on there. <laughs> they're not there. They're not the seat of luxury. They're not, they're not enjoying all these things that they had at one time. And Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. The same way that Moab was ashamed, will be ashamed of Chemosh, Israel, the nation, the northern kingdom, will be ashamed, not Bethel in the terms that we see it as the house of God, but Bethel in the terms of the Baal worship that occurred within Israel. The same way that Israel would be ashamed at their worship of Baal, Moab will be ashamed at their worship of Chemosh false gods that they had placed their hope and eyes upon so how can you say we are mighty and strong men for war the next issue that moab had is they boasted in their military might doesn't that sound familiar we're like the bully on the block aren't we i mean if there's something wrong in the world we're the ones who got to go straighten it out we're so mighty strong men for war the Lord says, Moab has plundered and gone up from her cities. Her chosen young men have gone down to the slaughter, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his afflictions comes quickly. Bemoan him, all you who are around him, and all you who know his name. Say, how the strong staff is broken, the beautiful rod. While we're looking at chapter 48, as we're going through this, I want you to, to think of something as we go through and look at the, the, the page of Scripture and some of the similarities that we might see within our own nation, and we'll see it in the other chapters as well. This <clears throat> judgment of Moab is the second longest judgment proclaimed by Jeremiah. And Moab just wasn't that big of a deal then. So commentators look at the pages and they say, it seems inordinately long. There are others that are going to be two verses or three verses long, but Moab's this huge chapter. Dealing with Moab, laying out all these things, and <clears throat> nobody really understands or can agree on, on why that is. But I just find it interesting that as we go through it, we can see so much of ourselves in this judgment that God brings O daughter inhabiting Debon, come down from your glory and sit in thirst. 
For the plunderer of Moab has come against you. He has destroyed your strongholds. O inhabitant of Arior, stand by the way and watch. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what happened? Moab is shamed, for he is broken down. Wail and cry. Tell it to Arnon that Moab is plundered. And judgment has come on the plain country. On Holan, Jazah, Mephath, on Dibon, Nebo, Beth, Diblathaim, on Kirjathaim, and Beth, Gamul, and Beth, Mion, on Kiriath, and Basra, on all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. For the horn of Moab is cut off. His arm is broken, says the Lord. The horn of Moab, the horn in the scripture is a symbol of power. The horn of Moab is broken. His power is, is taken away. His strength is gone. Make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. The Lord brings his next judgment that, that Moab exalted themselves, not above, but against. Moab became a nation against the Lord. Against who he was. At one time their father was called by God a righteous man. And while they had a strange beginning, certainly would have had a godly heritage, at least in that sense. However, they exalted themselves against the Lord. So God says, make him drunk and Moab will wallow in his vomit. For he shall also be in derision. For was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. You who dwell in Moab, leave the cities, dwell in the rock, and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. He says that, that you will wallow in your vomit. I don't know a better way to describe the things our nation is doing morally today than that that's a pretty apt description of the moral decline of the united states and i don't want us to fool ourselves because i watched some of them shows from the 50s and we were on a moral decline then too the older i get the better i was you know how that works right but there has been that moral decline for some time we find that our nation is risen up exalting itself against God. We're not that far from our nation saying, take that in God we trust off. If, if it had been in Jesus we trust on a dollar, it'd be gone, just so you know. God is a generic term, so it gets to ride out a little bit longer. Won't be long before the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God. If it was one nation under Jesus, it would have already been changed. But God, again, can be a generic term, so it's going to last a little longer. But our nation has exalted herself against the Lord. The other thing that the Lord challenges Moab with is she was not a friend to where? She's not a friend to Israel. She's not a friend to Israel. You cannot obliterate the word of God when God promised Abraham, I will bless them who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. 
The judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25 and the division of the sheep and the goats is wholly and completely about God dealing with the nations in terms of what they've done with Israel. Now, I'm not talking about financial support or any of those things. That's great. God can figure all those things out. I'm talking about people obeying the Word of God. You know that the Word of God calls everyone everywhere to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Do you know that God doesn't necessarily call Jerusalem the city of Israel? He calls it the city of God. Do you know that Jerusalem doesn't belong to any of the 12 tribes? That before there was a nation of Israel, Jerusalem, the city of peace, had a high priest living in its gates whose name was Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness who didn't have beginning of days or end of days, but has been made like unto the Son of God, the book of Hebrews tells us. The book of Hebrews also goes on to tell us that Jesus Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Not Aaron. Melchizedek. Because Aaron paid tithes to Melchizedek through the loins of Abraham, because Abraham paid tithes before the nation of Israel was ever born. In the city of Jerusalem, there was a priest to the Most High God whose name was the King of Righteousness. And when he ran into Abraham in Genesis chapter 14, when he runs into Abraham returning from the, the slaughter of the five kings, and Abraham's freed his, his uh, nephew Lot, and he's coming back with all the stuff of Sodom and Gomorrah, he runs into Melchizedek, and Melchizedek breaks for him bread and wine. That's not interesting. Why? Why does he break bread? Just like Jesus when he lifted the bread and he broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body. Just like Jesus when he handed him the cup and said, here, drink, this is my blood. Melchizedek gave the same implements to Abraham as he comes back. The city of Jerusalem is a special place to God. We study the pages of scripture you're going to find that if you wanted to narrow down the page of Scripture to the story of two cities, it would be the story of Jerusalem and Babylon. The city of peace and the city of rebellion. The city of God, the city of the world. So as we, as we look at that, as we recognize and see that, we, we can begin to see that, that same kind of attitude that Moab had. And the importance of having an attitude toward the nation of Israel and toward Jerusalem specifically, that we're praying for Jerusalem. The biggest thing, the biggest damage the church ever, ever had is when we came up with this idea of replacement theology. See, remember I told you arrogance always comes out of someone's concept that they somehow are, are better than, than somebody else. Replacement theology comes out of the concept that God has rebuked the nation of Israel and therefore he's finished with them and now it's us we're the new Israel the problem is you still have to do something with Romans 9 10 and 11 where Paul says God has never done with the nation of Israel and just as he has grafted us in the church into the olive tree a wild branch into the natural olive tree he can graft the natural back God's not done it's not finished. It's, it's not over. So we want to be those who care about Israel. But Moab, we see, didn't care. 
They were filled with pride in verse 29. We have heard the pride of Moab, for he is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. If we're going to pick a verse that could describe our nation, we're a proud people. Holy cow, we're just so proud of all the stuff we've done. That American dream, you know, we just grab ourselves by the bootstraps and pull ourselves up, right? We don't need God. We're able. Look at what we've done. Look at all we've accomplished in 200 years of history. Pride of a nation. I know his wrath, says the Lord, but it's not right. He, his lies have made nothing right. Therefore, I will wail for Moab, and I will cry out for all Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kir Harris. Do you hear? You need to know who's talking there. That's God. God says, I know his wrath. Whose wrath? I know the wrath of Moab. I know the wrath. They have the problem with wrath. And it's not right. And he says, and their lies have made nothing right. The lies that they tell, they don't change anything. Tell whatever lies you want. You say a lie often enough, you start to believe it. But it doesn't make it true. So God says, I will wail for Moab. And I will cry out for all Moab. I would that our heart would break for what breaks God's heart. I'll wail for Moab. Most of the time we look at our enemies or the people who are opposed to the direction of the church or, or people like our, in our government or our Congress or our president and we can be filled with disgust and derision and hatred and all those things are in direct opposition to who God calls us to be. For God who looks on these enemy, these people who he didn't give his law to but had the opportunity for the law, these people who told lies and were proud and trusted in themselves and God cries for them. He wails for them. That's not a term of he sniffles a little or his voice cracks. God says, I wail for Moab, and I will cry out for all Moab. And I will mourn for the men of Kir Harris, O vine of Sibma, I will weep for you with the weeping of Jazir. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the sea of Jazir. The plunder has fallen on your summer fruit and your vintage. Joy and gladness are taken. From the plentiful field and from the land of Moab, I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread with joyous shouting, not joyous shouting. But you hear the heart of God in this judgment. The judgment of God is never given with pleasure or satisfaction or the kind of the way often we look at judgment to be. We think God's finally going to judge our enemies. Even when you see the psalmist, when David would write, and he'd say things like, knock out all their teeth, Lord. You know, you, there's a certain attitude within the psalmist that says, man, I just want to see them get what they deserve. But that's, that's not the heart of God. The heart of God wails when that judgment comes. It weeps for the lost. As we look at the scripture when when he says, For I have caused wine to fail. The Lord says, This is my judgment, and I'm taking away your joy. And I never rejoiced in disciplining my kids. I would much rather sit with my kids and play. Put them on my lap and laugh. I had a great time with the grandbabies that were up for a week and just play with them. I don't care 
Sometimes Addison, my little granddaughter, she just wants grandpa and she'll jump all over him and sometimes she don't. It's okay. It doesn't upset me. It doesn't hurt my feelings. It's great. I just enjoy the time that I get to spend. And then there are those times where mom or dad are trying to get her to do something and she won't do it. And I, I'm sitting back there thinking, oh, baby, just, just, just do it. And in the heart of a two-year-old, such anger and disobedience, such sin. And there are people who say, I, I can't believe that the children aren't innocent. Man, you aren't watching kids, apparently. I don't know what you're doing. But I watch this sweet, cute little two-year-old just be it as vile as you can be. Don't rejoice in discipline. Neither does God. He doesn't rejoice in it. He does it because it has to be done. But he doesn't rejoice in uh, Ezekiel. that says that the Lord does not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't celebrate over their death. For the cry of Heshbon to Elay to Jehaz, they have uttered their voice from Zor, from Horonim, like a three-year-old heifer. For the waters of Nimrim also shall be desolate. Someday I'll ask a farmer what a three-year-old heifer has to do with Wayland, but I'm sure there must be some good farm story there. Unfortunately, I don't know it. Moreover, says the Lord, I will cause to cease in Moab the one who offers sacrifices in the high places. Who burns incense to his God. God says I'm going to stop this false sacrifice. I'm going to show them that their God has no power. No power to save. No power to move. Therefore my heart will wail like flutes for Moab. Listen to that. Like flutes my heart will wail for the men of Kirharis. Therefore the riches they have acquired are perished. For every head will be bald and every beard clipped and on the hands will be cuts and on the loins sackcloth. A general lamentation on all the housetops of Moab and in its streets. For I have broken Moab like a vessel in which is no pleasure, says the Lord. And they will wail how she is broken down, how Moab has turned her back with shame. So Moab will be a derision and a dismay to all those about her. Thus says the Lord, Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come through Moab like a hot knife through butter. He's going to, like an eagle spreads his wing over the country. He's going to spread his wings and he's going to take her. Kirioth is taken and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty man's hearts in Moab on that day will be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. And Moab will be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Listen, fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. You ever heard of out of the frying pan into the fire? Well, this is the Bible's version. He who flees from fear will fall into the pit. He who gets out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For upon Moab will I, upon it I will bring the year of their punishment, says the Lord. There is nowhere anyone can hide from a punishment of God, from his judgment. No place. No place that they can flee. No place they can run to. There is nowhere to go from the judgment of God. Those who fled 
stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of exhaustion. But a fire will come out of Heshbon, a flame from the midst of the Sihon, and shall devour the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh, perish. For your sons have been taken captive, and your daughters captive. Look at verse 47. Yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. See, the kingdom of the Lord and the kingdom of his Christ, there is a place for Moab. Had a wretched beginning, starting from incest, as the Ammonites, which we're not going to have time to look at. And we're going to see a lot of the same phrases as we go through the judgment of the nations, like birth pangs. That should ring a bell for us Sunday mornings as we went through Matthew chapter 24, telling us about the, the end of days being like birth pangs coming upon a pregnant woman. We're going to see that, and we're going to see several nations, not all, several nations where the Lord makes his promise. And I will bring you back in the latter days. I will bring you back in the latter days. God's heart is not to see their out and out utter destruction. God's heart is to see people that would return from the error of their ways, recognize the truth, be set free from bondage. But we see on the pages of Scripture, all throughout Scripture, that God does not violate the free will of man. He sets before him two paths and gives him the right to choose life or death. The challenge to us as we look at the judgment is to recognize God's judgment will come, his judgment will fall, nothing will stall the judgment of God. But the judgment of God may not come immediately. The scripture lays out for us that God is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness. Peter wrote to us. But he's long-suffering, desiring that no one should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God's judgment begins in the house of God. Because in the house of God, even if this judgment falls and you were to lose your life before the hands of of the living God, you are okay. But the heathen nation, he's not. Moab's not okay. Ammon's not okay. It's like David's call for Absalom. Don't kill my son Absalom. Why? He's in rebellion. He hasn't repented. He has no relationship with God. If you kill him, I lose him forever. The same heart that God has we see in the judgment of Moab. Tonight as we kind of just mull over some of the things that the scripture has laid out for us as we close out tonight i want to encourage you just let's just enter into a quiet time before the lord a time of prayer if the lord would move if the lord would speak to your heart uh if you would like to pray i want to encourage you to pray with us if uh if you just want to sit and and bask in his holiness that's okay too but just uh have a quiet time before the lord um if the lord moves gives you an utterance or a word to share we want to invite you to share um also during this time, uh, as we're praying, as we go before the Lord, if, 
if uh, something's going on, you got to go. Don't sweat it. And if you got to bail, just bail. It's all good. But we're just going to spend some time before the Lord and seeking his face. Father God, as we just come before you tonight and we remember all that you have given and all that you have done, Lord, I just pray, Lord, I pray, God, that that we would have just, Father, echoed the prayer that says, I want, I want a broken heart for what breaks God's heart. I, I get a broken heart or irritated heart more than I get a broken heart, really, about the things that people do or our nation does or the decisions our government makes or what have you. I, I, I get irritated and I get frustrated and I get angry, but I don't wail. Every day if I turn on the news, I... I'd see the face of some person, life cut short, who entered into eternity. I don't, I don't know if they know the Lord or they, or they do or they don't. But what I do know is I didn't do anything to help him know. Lord, when the life of the wicked is taken, you mourn. You mourn. You cry. You wail over the judgment that falls on a nation. This is a heart of the God of love who will chastise and scourge and cry over the fact that he has to do it. And I want to have a heart like that. A heart that can't stand to see someone perish. The scripture also tells us that all heaven erupts in praise when one sinner repents. The difference between the two is unmistakable. As we are followers of God most high, then we ought to resemble him. That him who says... He follows Jesus. Walk also as he walked. So God, we just, we want that spirit to move among us. A spirit that that is willing to repent. A spirit that is willing to seek a changed life in our relationship with you. But also a spirit that says, there is a world perishing and I have a responsibility to her. I can't save her. But I have a responsibility to tell her. To find a way to witness. To find a way to share my faith. To not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. So God, we just pray as we come before you that you would move in the heart of your church. That you would call us even as Ezekiel called to the valley of dry bones. And he prophesied. The Lord had his spirit enter into the dry bones and they lived. Even so, our dry bones can live the power of Christ as the spirit is poured out into the heart of his church we can be everything Jesus said we can so God move
so God do break our heart for what breaks yours.